Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Peter, welcome to the War Room. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Okay, I gotta say, um, I don't know if they give out cover of the year award, but this cover is fantastic of this book. And so it's, uh, did you have any insight on the, or any direction on the cover or publisher or how did you get such a good looking cover? Well, they, 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 there, are, there are two different publishers because it's a US edition and, a, and it's a UK edition. So the UK edition has the uh, um, the German prince who who's disappeared um, right. and um, has the, the pickle hauber and then the um, the other one is uh, from uh, one of the famous paintings of the battles of the um, wars of unification. So, I, I, what I the only steer I gave is, you know, please don't put something from the the Wehrmacht uh, <laughs> on 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 the cover because the, the book is, is is about bigger things. It's not just about the world wars. It's about a, a longer trajectory and a, and a broader space than covered by modern Germany. Okay, well, let's get into what the book is about, Iron and Blood, a military history of the German-speaking peoples since 1500. First off, that's a long time. That is a real long time. Yeah, exactly. And and th- there's a reason for that, um, because most books um, start, say, in 1870 or maybe with Frederick the Great in the 18th century, um, at the earliest, perhaps in the in the middle of the 17th century, and they follow the line uh, of, of German history following the trajectory of Prussia, a kind of rise and fall story. And I really wanted to contextualize that and put that in into um, a broader time time frame so that we're not just viewing everything from the perspective of the, of the two world wars. It's obviously been a, a much longer period now um, of peace uh, until, you know, obviously recent events um, since since those wars, uh, you know, the, and, and we need to get more perspective and put them into into that longer, longer trajectory. OK, so let's set the table for what's going on in 1500 in the world. Right. Well, at that point, um, this is a, a world before the sovereign state is, is fully established. So uh, power is more diffuse. Um, and it's better to understand um, Europe as a kind of hierarchy, and the, the pinnacle of the hierarchy is the, the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, somebody is usually dismissed as ineffectual, um, but in fact, uh, that's one of the questions I'm trying to answer. If you look at a map, you open a historical atlas, you look. All the other colours, uh, countries are nicely shaded in in solid colours. Uh, middle of the of the map, uh, the heart of Europe, the Holy Roman Empire is this mess. It's this multicoloured sort of patchwork of stuff. So, how how did that how did that um, work? How did that survive? And a key thing is is collective security and conflict resolution. And that that I, I'm arguing is. If anything, if there ever really was a German way of war, that's much more about it than than our kind of, you know, the usual perspective that we have shaped by um, the story of Prussia and and especially of, of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you are on the cusp of the Reformation, too, which is going to attack some of that Holy Ro- Roman Emperor yep. stuff that's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is... Um, yeah, the first sort of permanent uh, religious schism in in Christendom since the 11th century, fundamental uh, shift in world history, and yeah, of course, um, causes uh, 
or it certainly exacerbates um, conflict. Uh, and that is one of the things that has to be overcome. And um, it, it, it's, it's a violent story, but it's not only of, uh, a story of, of violence. It's also a story of negotiation and compromise. And it's largely through that um, that these, these tensions are essentially diffused. Yeah, so if you move forward from 1500, you, you have the Reformation period, um, which is going to have its own impact on Europe. How much was kept and changed and lost from the German perspective pre this period to post this period? Because there is a lot of religious stuff that happens that's, that does tie into military because of how they thought about church, state, government back then. But also it's just the the rebellious aspect of separation <laughs> changes people yeah. as well. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, our, our sort of the we have a, a, a an understanding of that that's been basically shaped by the, the writing of the 19th century, which is the period when um, these problems are settled violently through um, the exclusion of Austria, which is the major Catholic um, part of German speaking Central Europe, and the concentration of the other parts of Germany into a, a, a Prussian dominated second empire, which is predominantly Protestant and has a very Protestant character. So uh, a lot of the historical writing that was produced in that period is, is reflecting, even if it doesn't say so, on, on that. And is trying to, a lot of it is trying to justify that. So the solution seems always to be, let's create something that's strong, powerful, centralised, that will sort out all of these problems. But what we've got to remember is that, yes, there are periods where this doesn't work, but for a very long time, um, the, 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 the system more or less functions. It functions... You know, the individuals might suffer, but broader peace is 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 maintained. And that that is an achievement that was tended to be kind of denigrated by the writers of the later 19th and early 20th century. And so how were armies, militaries, you mentioned that a little bit, maybe unpack kind of how they were conscripted back then. How did that come about? Yeah, well, the this we, this is an era really of, of, of when warfare is seasonal. So in the 16th and into the 17th century, you fight when there's grass. That that's your that's your oil. You know that that's what keeps armies moving. So all your animals, all the cavalry horses, they they need grass, and also the roads are not too messed up with with heavy rain. Um, so you tended to fight campaigns um, uh, from April through into October. And so you're recruiting soldiers for that period. You might leave a garrison in, in the captured area over winter, um, but the men are generally sort of disbanded, re-recruited again in time for the, the next campaign. And it gives this kind of punctuated rhythm to a lot of the conflicts. And then from the, depending on where you look, late 16th, certainly by the later 17th century, we have permanent armies. Um, and for much of the period up to the Napoleonic era, these are really cadres. So you have men who are serving um, for long periods of time. They sign up for four years, maybe eight years. Um, sometimes in Prussia's case, they're conscripted for uh, effectively for life. Um, and they form the core. And then when you mobilize, you bring in other people to, to expand your, your, your force. You have this kind of cadre system and that works through up into the end of the 18th century, very beginning of the, of the 19th century. And, and what is, what is the, the, the government of, of what kind of government formations were there? Did it change? Did it mold? And does that play a role into this? Yeah, ab absolutely. So we we have we have a system where 
um, power is, is is shared. So the emperor within the within with the empire has the initiative, um, and also um, they are always, with one exception, they always come from the the Austrian Habsburg monarchy, which controls about a third of the empire and has the resources really to start a war, but not necessarily to win one. So it has to co- cooperate with the with the other German princes. Uh, through imperial institutions if it wants to get their their help and each of these have um the the sort of legal right to to maintain troops ostensibly for the empire's defense and if there's an official mobilization then they have to contribute contingents to a common army and they're generally speaking they're all too weak really to to start wars on their own and that's one of the things that helps hold the system together and that's why the rise of prussia in the 18th century becomes such a problem because it is it is a second German great power and can challenge uh, challenge the Habsburgs. What was warfare like during this 1500s, 1600s, from a couple of perspectives? Size of army, what would happen? Like how how was a victory determined? You know, because we think about World War Two or Vietnam, yeah. or World War One. It's a, it's a lot different back then, though. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and, and they, these are good good questions. I mean, one of the things when you look at the size of the armies, you got to remember that the population is a lot smaller. So when we say a sort of typical field army is you know thirty forty thousand men, and that's men, so. Um, there'd be at least half as many again sort of non-combatants many of them women not always so you're talking 50 60 thousand people that's the size of one of the largest cities in europe um so other than perhaps places like london paris naples uh you know that uh, an army on the move is the equivalent of one of your major cities uh you know vienna or cologne or somewhere like that um so you you, you have that as uh as one as one factor to think to think about um then they are it's it's seen as a as an era of decisive battle and there, there there was the um the idea that if you could defeat your opponent's field army then you know that would obviously give you a upper hand so that basic kind of thinking is the same but a lot a lot of it was really that in most cases they they recognized they were not going to win a spectacularly comprehensive and swift victory so you're trying to force your opponent to make an honorable peace so we'll give you more or less what you want um but you accept the fact that you're you, you know you, you you will leave them largely intact so this kind of absolute concept of, of warfare to totally destroying your enemy you know in the manner of say carthage in the ancient world or what we think of in the era of so-called total war you know that was largely absent I remember reading, I can't remember who the biography was, but it was a Civil War general. I think it was Lee, maybe. And it was pretty clear at this point that he was he was done. And, you know, how he, he's moving his troops. They didn't have food. They didn't have resources. And, you know, troops were dying and, and because of, you know, non-combatant, uh, combat-related illnesses. Is it is it hard for you to go back and kind of read how they viewed maybe the soldiers um, in these pre-eras of modern civilization? Because when I go back and read how these generals thought about their men, and they haven't gone back, obviously, this far in time, but mm. it's just like, man, they just they really don't think of them as anything other than just a pawn, if you will. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I mean, it, 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 it's quite difficult to sort of situate yourself properly in the, in the kind of the heads of people in the past, because um, we often only have their words and um, people expressed ideas and thoughts, you know, perhaps rather differently. Um, you know, the sort of the age of sentimentality and so on kicks in and, you know, in the late 18th century. But, yeah, I think that, that there's a paternalistic view um, of of soldiers. So, um, it's remarkable how many of the generals of in the 17th and the 18th century are referred to as father and they refer to their their soldiers as children. So obviously children can't think for themselves and they're not supposed to. Uh, you know, there's a hierarchy here, but there is also an element of, of paternalism. Plus, it's very expensive and difficult to recruit replacements. Um, so you don't want to lose them. Um, but they, yeah, they, they, there, there is the... the um, the sense that the that the their lives are to 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 some considerable extent expendable, provided you do it in a, in an honourable cause, and you're not doing this in a in a deliberately wasteful manner. Yeah, and it, it does see that's why I was asking about the army size because when you get something like the invasion of Normandy, that uh, something that that never would have been considered. Obviously, there's all technological problems, but just the sheer loss of life that you're willing to risk. Um, to take the beach in the storm, people didn't have that many troops, and so it's the the risks are different back then too, because you can't suffer a catastrophic loss and replace them either. That's that's true, but of course these things are in proportion. So if you if you look at battles or sieges, so a lot of sieges involve a, a, an assault, um, which is usually very costly. Um, and you're you're talking, you know, ten to thirty percent of the of the soldiers are, are likely to become casualties. Sometimes it's even higher. Um, so that's a very large proportion. And um, if you add on that, um, just as you were describing, so in the in the situation in the American Civil War, I mean, the the, the you're usually losing three dead to every you know, to sickness to to every one who is killed in combat. So. You know, alongside this, there are all these other losses too. There's a, a huge loss of of animals, um, so horses, which you know, in an agricultural economy, labour and and animal power is absolutely crucial. So, we we might think, well, that doesn't look like very much, but the impact is is quite quite profound, and also the environmental impact of of um, prolonged conflicts. So that many of these conflicts last. Um, you know, five years, seven years, and we have these names, obviously, for the the wars. Obviously, famously, the Thirty Years' War, which genuinely lasts thirty years, with a couple of breaks in, in while it's underway. No, that, that's a that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. If you lose a horse, I don't know how many babies a horse has a year, one or two, or whatever it is. That's all they can have, you know? yeah. and so you can't mass reproduce horses. Yeah. But you could mass reproduce or mass produce tanks by building more factories and more efficiencies. And so there is a sense in which a loss back then on that perspective is is uh, quite costly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and very often by the end of the campaign, half half of the so-called cavalrymen will be dismounted because they're, they're, they're animals who died. And so this is another reason why operations tend to grind to a halt by by October. Um, because um, it's 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 very difficult to, to to keep moving and to keep these replacements. Yeah. Mm. So going from fifteen hundred forward, maybe go through some of the how um, they were, they were making allies and what enemies they had, um, kind of at a high level. How did that shape and morph and kind of evolve? 
Right. So within within the empire, there are there are there are conflicts. So there's several conflicts in in the middle of the 16th century, and these repeat really in in the Thirty Years' War, which is can be seen as a as a civil war, and it's about the distribution of political power and religious rights within the empire. And they are that's basically resolved by the famous Peace of Westphalia, which is a kind of compromise settlement, which basically resolves the situation in the empire and then until the rise of prussia in the in the 18th century so the the first significant challenge is the war of austrian succession in 1740 um they there there aren't wars within the empire so the, the the main enemies are outside and they are most fundamentally the ottoman turks the ottoman turks are a true world power the air empire straddles three continents they have um, four or five times the population of the of the Austrian Habsburgs, uh, a massive for the, t- the time, a massive standing army. They reach the gates of Vienna in 1526. They come back again famously in the great siege of 1683. So they they represent at times an existential threat. And it's also it enables the empire and especially the Austrian Habsburgs to to play up to their role as Christendom's defender, you know, they are holding the, the 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 front line on what was sometimes. I don't want to be too much like Samuel Huntington, but it's you know it can be perceived as a clash of civilizations. It certainly was presented like that in in some of the propaganda and discussions. So that you have this going on really into the 18th century, the, the, and then the Turks are largely in retreat, but they still can win. They win again in the 1730s. Um, where they recover some of the lost land that, 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 they, that they lost earlier. On the other side, so to the west, you have basically uh, the, the Kingdom of France, which is Europe's second largest state, very populous, rich, and is trying to, to take pieces of land in northwestern Europe, what we now would call the Low Countries, and in, in, in Italy. And their usual opponents are, are the Habsburgs. So that, that and sometimes these conflicts east and west are, are, are simultaneous. So in the 1680s is a is a period of crisis because there are major wars in, in 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 both directions. You mentioned siege. What what were those like? Okay, from the outside and from the inside. Right. So if you're going to do it properly, yeah, you 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 have to surround um, a town, which is quite quite um, a, a challenge and also once we move over from the 1480s onwards to artillery fortifications we are now away from the middle ages where your defense is height you stop people climbing over a wall now we've got defense in depth so we have artillery fortifications with artillery placed on them to further range so you you begin that, that expands a town outwards and it's one of the reasons why continental european cities often have their modern street plan because they have this ring of fortifications it takes years to build you can't alter them so you build upwards and people live in apartments whereas in in england we didn't have those largely and our towns could spread out rather in the, like in the us fashion so you know it, it's left its mark actually this uh, uh, even even today, so yeah, it's very very difficult to surround a, um, a, a major town, and often you don't have enough manpower, which is why one of the reasons why sieges last so long because people are always slipping in and out, bringing in supplies and so on. So you're aiming to try to breach these walls with with artillery batteries, um, and the idea was when a so-called practicable breach, in other words, the, enough of the masonry and earth had fallen into the ditch that 
it could be assaulted, that at that point it was honourable for the garrison to surrender. And if they don't surrender and then the place is subsequently taken by an, a, a storm, an assault, then the victorious besiegers had the license to plunder it. And if you were living in the town, you really didn't want that to happen. So you, quite often you get the the inhabitants putting pressure on the garrison commander to, to surrender, to avoid this, this, this happening. So when, when they're trying to surround these cities, how big for perspective is one of these cities? Well, right. Um, let's think. So let's take take Vienna, which which is besieged. Um, I'm trying to think now. Well, that would have had a population probably 50,000, 70,000 in mm-hmm. the 1680s. Um, if you walk across the, the, the inner city, you can walk. It takes you maybe half an hour to walk across. Um, and then you obviously have these big walls. So people are quite tightly packed, which is obviously a hygiene issue. Mm-hmm. Um and then the Turks, they they had a massive camp. They they arrived there in the spring, uh, and they're still there in um, whenever it is September. I think when the relief army arrives, they've just blown a mine, um, and in fact, um, they did some uh, the the modern parliament um, is either side of what's called the the Ringstrasse, which is where the fortifications had been and were removed in the eighteen fifties, and they built a tunnel under this road. Uh, this ring road for the parliamentarians to go from the parliament to their offices. And as they did, they cut across a, a Turkish mine. So they'd had these mine shafts where they were digging and they were putting in explosives to try and blow up more of the defences. And they were doing that at the point of relief. So it had taken them many months to get to, to that point. And the relief army really, it is one of those uh, in the nick of time type um, events where where the the Turks are then routed by the the fact that their camp has been attacked by the the relief force of, from from the empire and also from Poland that arrives just in, just at the right moment. So, if you're living in Vienna, the Turks have you surrounded. I mean, what do you do? You, I mean, I guess you can <laughs> go to your job potentially, but like, wh- like, what are you doing? Uh, it's very, very, very difficult, and you you run the risk. Uh, you know, if you're a, a poorer member of the community, you run the risk of being expelled as what were termed at the time. So it comes back to one of your earlier questions: useless mouths. So you know, you don't fulfil any useful function. You just consume the rations that have been stored up. So they could chuck you outside. And you were really at the mercy of the besiegers. Do they let you f- through as refugees or do you remain in this no man's land in between? So, you know, it was pretty, it could be pretty nasty. And then obviously there is, there's a bombardment. The artillery is not particularly accurate. Sometimes they use um, heated shot, which is, uh, you know, um, we don't have a great deal of explosive um, munitions at this point they do have mortar bombs which do explode but they also have red hot shot which can cause fires too um, and that that could um, could damage um, obviously cause a lot of damage and there are a number of cases where you know significant portions of, of, of towns have been destroyed and in, in, uh, as a consequence of being besieged and, and so the opposite side if you're a soldier sitting outside it, it, or are you just kind of just hanging out i mean obviously if you got if you're shooting the weapons or whatnot i can see you doing so but if you're just a cavalry guy or you just on patrol what are you doing right well if you're if you're in the infantry you'd be digging and manning trenches so um the the the, the besiegers um start uh usually just out of range 
um, of the of the uh, fortifications they want to attack. They dig trenches um, often at night, uh, and then they'll zigzag these trenches forward, um, to, and then at a suitable point they build a gun battery, set up the artillery. While they're firing, they'll zigzag the trenches forward. So you're trying to inch forward towards the the. Um, the, the defenders and the defenders are obviously trying to disrupt this so launching attacks often again at night time to, to spike guns or fill in trenches or, or, or this sort of thing um, if you're not on that kind of frontline duty you're probably making what was called a gabion which is a kind of wicker basket which can then be filled with earth um, so these were used to reinforce the, the entrenchments and reinforce the batteries. If you're in the cavalry, you're more likely to be scouring the countryside looking for supplies because you probably run out very quickly. I mean, you, as I said, you, you, you know, we, let's if we take um, another famous siege. So that, um, the, uh, the, the, when the Imperial Army during the Thirty Years' War tries to besiege Nuremberg, so that has a population of about 30,000 swelled with refugees to 100,000 people. That's a huge number. Uh, plus there's the Swedish army that's inside. The Imperial army is camped out. There's, they start off about 70,000. By the time they abandon uh, this, uh, there's only about 30,000 of them left. The others have, have died. The, the, somebody did a calculation that, that I can't remember the exact figure, but they worked out how much manure and dung is produced on a daily basis so it is literally tons and you know these are serious problems they have some idea of you know camp hygiene and latrines and so on but you know it was very very deficient so it's unpleasant both to be outside and to be inside so what took us in this in this part of the world from the this type of warfare to the next phase and what was the next phase right well uh we have um, I mean, in the in the classic narrative, which I've I'm in the book, I'm slightly contesting because I'm arguing that we don't really move to a phase of limited wars. So the classic idea is that we have professional armies by the late 17th century, and that runs through to the 18th century. And in actual fact, the wars of the late 17th and the 18th century are also very costly and and, and bloody. Um, but the Revolutionary uh, wars, so the wars associated with revolutionary France, um, which starts another 25 years or so of, of, of conflict that ends ultimately in Battle of Waterloo and Napoleon's definitive defeat in 1815. These are on a on a on a bigger scale. Um, and that that is largely because um, certainly with the with the French state, they um, the abolition of privileges, we tend to think, well, that's a great thing. But that also included the privilege of not being conscripted or the privilege of not paying taxes. So the state has expanded its ability to reach into your pockets and to command your your treasure and your blood and you know to use you in in the armed forces. So the French have a uh, increased their army on a massive scale. The opponents of France have to do the same by and large, and so we're into an era which is it's not really um, yet sort of total universal service they've proclaimed that that they don't actually um implement it but it is a it's a war on a bigger scale and very you know prolonged prolonged conflict and then everything in the 19th century has that kind of image 
So on the one hand, conservatives trying to, you know, prevent this. We don't want, you know, this is dangerous. War, this type of warfare also leads to social revolution and anarchy and so on. And liberals ambivalent because some like the kind of political changes, but so they're also slightly concerned. So there's an attempt to sort of we keep something of that. So the idea that theoretically everyone is liable to serve, but in practice, um, everyone is short of money after 1815. So they only recruit um, a, a, a very small proportion. So perhaps 20 percent of those who are theoretically liable. And then gradually the proportion of those being liable is increased across the 19th century. But it's only the First World War that is the dramatic thing where, you know, suddenly pretty much everyone who is liable has to serve and you 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 you, you really cannot escape yeah in the in the first world war i would guess is the first time where you have the huge volumes of armies and the ability to kill huge vol- volumes of armies at the same time like so you, you cause if you'd have had those large armies obviously you know you could have a spear or a gun you know and you know, but 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 the the weaponry in world world war 1 really went up a notch that, that that's that's true yes um but i think we 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 need not to to see this as a kind of simple progress of destruction i mean it is perfectly possible to massacre a population if you're just armed with machetes you know we've seen that in 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 the 1990s so you know it's primitive weapons don't don't necessarily mean fewer casualties um and Pre-modern warfare um, is fought at short range where you see your target and it's fought with with large caliber bullets, which do which basically you're most likely to be dead if you're you're hit. Um, by the 1880s, 1890s, we've got smaller caliber bullets. You're more likely to have a wound that you could survive. So the the, the proportionately the, the ammunition expenditure increases in the ratio in, in relative to the to the actual number who who are hit and killed um but um you're quite correct if we look at other types of weaponry so obviously first world war sees the first i mean there have been a few incidents in a few years before but it's the first time that bombardment of civilians from the air starts so you have the ability to hit and also to to regard that as a legitimate target. So there are already changes where, yes, the, the level of destructiveness is is increasing. Yeah, and it, it it's something that I'm a little concerned with about modern warfare, which is the idea that someone in Nevada can control a drone in Afghanistan and kill someone. And... There, when you say it, you almost feel bad saying that you want the war to feel real because it's not that you're advocating you want people to die, but you also want to advocate that if if this is a cause worth fighting for, we need to make sure that we don't lose target of what we're doing, why we're doing it. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that comes at a steep price. And so I'm wondering, going back to what you said earlier about this kind of nobility, they were they, they you know they would get a compromise at the end. I wonder if the closeness, the proximity that the wars were fought at almost led them not to want to do the total war. Now, obviously, you have people like Genghis Khan or whatever who would go through and do stuff like that. So I'm not trying to um, mm-hmm. act like it was all roses, but I do wonder if that was part of some of that warfare back then. Is just the proximity made it a little a little more real? Yes, yes, I think so. And I think, it. I mean, there have been people who have argued that 
you know, some of the problems that the West has had with terrorism in, in recent years is, you know, the asymmetry is, is, is so lopsided that, um, we, you know, our populations are not suffering, um, whereas where the conflicts have been fought in the you know, previous 20 years or so, or so, civilian populations have suffered very greatly and they have no, they don't even see what the, the perpetrators in many cases. So the only way you can hit back is, is, is through these sort of terrorist acts. And we might actually um, be better able perhaps to have uh, some kind of a, of a of more lasting negotiated compromise if we have been seen to be blooded. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's a controversial argument, but I, I, I think it maps on to some of the things you just said. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, yeah. It's not, it's, it's one of those things where, you're not advocating for more people dying, but but it sounds that way. And so it, it yeah. sounds. I think I think yeah. that's part of the problem is that you're not you're, you're not actually saying you want more people to die. You're saying that you want to make sure that the cost is being measured adequately because people people are going to die um, if you're going to go to war. One, one of the things at this long period of history, um, we talked about um, the sieges, we talked about um, the weaponry, we talked about the the, the fall of the uh, the Reformation at least, um, to, to partnership and allies. How does propaganda play into this narrative? Because propaganda is always tied up with war. Was it different back then? Has it always been the same? Did it help uh, them get allies? Did it cost them allies? How did that tie in at all? Well, it's it's the same in a very abstract, fundamental way in that, in that it was fulfilling broadly similar functions as what we would expect in, 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 in our today or, or in the more recent past. It's very different in terms of content and, 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 and method. Um, and and sometimes some of the intent. Um, so yes, one of the one of the things is to if we look back in in the past and we think well these are undemocratic structures um, headed usually by monarchs. Um, you know, so you have the idea you know war is the sport of kings and they're doing this uh, fighting on a whim and and uh, you know make you know ordinary ordinary folk just have to go along with it. That's not really the case. I mean most you know most monarchs it's not a case of you know being able to say off with it off with his head you know and 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 it will be done you you had to be perceived as legitimate and it's really a kind of fairly brittle facade of power um and uh you you're you're there because you're perceived as keeping order and being you know this sort of benign authoritarian figure that will really still somehow has this the subject's best interests at heart so they have to maintain that so war has got to be presented as being just it's got to be within um the sort of uh reconcilable with 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 religious beliefs and there is an attempt to mobilize um popular support and that doesn't mean go out and fight that's much more don't make a fuss don't protest against these awful taxes we're asking um and a, a kind of ideological mobilization which you know we've got to remember say 16th 17th century definitely even into the 18th century it's very much an age of faith so um you would be called especially if the war was against the turks you would be called regular days of prayer and penance um and that was that's a kind of ideological mobilization praying for victory Okay, so we're gonna ignore world world war. I can't speak to World War Two. We're gonna go fifteen hundred to pre World War Two. Who are the two or three most important characters from your perspective in this era? 
Oh, across that entire period. <laughs> hey, it's, it's only a couple hundred years. <laughs> uh, right. Um, well, I, I suppose um, uh, if you know, there's some. There is. Let's put it this way: there are some fascinating characters. So, you know, one of them is obviously um, Valenstein, the Imperial General, um, who uh, magics up armies seemingly out of out of nothing. Uh, and sustains them by uh, largely getting them to live at the expense of the of the areas where they're fighting. This is during the the Thirty Years' War, and it's perceived uh, um, by it's actually by his many of his subordinates, many of the people that he's actually favoured, um, who conspire against him because he's seen as this kind of all powerful figure, and they sort of whisper in the emperor's ear, "He's going to betray you." And so he's then uh, murdered in, in February of, of 1634. So he's a dramatic, you know, he, he's a nobleman to start with, but he has this meteoric rise. Um, and he's, if you pick up, you know, any book on, on, on private military and security companies today, and, you know, if it has any kind of historical context, they often refer to Wallenstein as, you know, a, a kind of con- private contractor. It's, the, it's more complicated than that, but he's a really fascinating um character um and then well uh yeah i mean it's 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 so hard <laughs> to pick out to pick out individuals and 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 it's always likely to be uh to be men um but we've got to remember that there are uh you know there are women that accompany these armies and you know some of them some of them leave um written accounts so that's that or or they're civilians that experience um, warfare. So there's some pretty interesting accounts um, uh, that that are that are available. What was the maybe most interesting, surprising thing that you found researching this book? Hmm. Um, well, other than just the sheer sheer complexity and the difficulty of trying to get it down in in a, in a way. That, uh, that makes it comprehensible. And I guess that's the thing. I think that, um, uh, you know, that it, 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 there's a natural tendency to sort of simplify stories and to find a kind of narrative arc and you know, pin it on individuals or countries that seem to act like individuals. So we almost like they, they have a persona and a, and a life, you know, this rise and fall sort of thing is sort of very biologically sort of inflected. And I think, you know, trying to step away from from that and, and to sort of include stuff that gets omitted, but when you put it into the mix, um, you begin to understand things, I think, perhaps in a, in a better way. So the, 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 the book includes a lot of discussion also of Switzerland and, and, and Austria. So the areas that make up the kind of German speaking political space um, across that time frame. And that, a lot of that was, was really interesting stuff to, to, to read about. I have to ask, um, the book is listed as 972 pages. Were were you trying to get to a thousand and just yeah. ran out of material or did you purposely not hit the 1000 mark? Right. Well, I, I did do one that was at 997. So, um, oh. yeah, so yeah, so I was very close. No, I mean, um, no, all, all of, all of the, 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 these larger books that I've done have been worked at much bigger than I'd intended. Mm. Um, and that's, that's partly because, um, uh, I, I, I want to explain things. So I don't want to just assume that the, the reader will immediately know who this person is or, you know, what that context is or what that institution is. So that you, you have to explain. And that obviously adds 
but also to to try to present things in in the round so um to cover the stuff as i say that is is normally left out and and without it you a lot of the the explanation um uh, is is missing yeah i was looking at um we had a guest on the other day and he was talking about something. So I started researching that period of time. And it, it talks about the 1916 Black Tom Island bombing in the U.S. I didn't even heard of this. And so I started looking at it and you start, you know, you can get in you know, a blog or two. You can kind of get the feel of what happened. And but then you start looking at the characters and the spies and it takes Germany to like 1970 to pay the debt off. And, you know, you can spend hours just in there researching that. And it's like, oh, my gracious. And then, of course, there's probably all kinds of stuff that the Germans did when they went back and that you don't know about. And so, yeah, I can see how if you want to tell that full story, yeah, a blog will get you the the high notes, but it'd probably take yeah. 300 pages just to tell that one story. Yeah, that's right. And 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 obviously, I mean, it, 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 it's the it's the thing that you do with with the benefit of all the work that everyone else has done as well. So, yeah. um, you know, you've got sort of whatever five books or you know massive books on just a particular battle, and you know, sort of. Yeah, that, that, that's the thing. It just multiplies. I think there's something like there's four thousand um, books and articles published just on the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so if you could go back to any period in the book and ask one person a question, who would it be, and what would you ask them? Mm. Well, it might be interesting to ask Frederick the Great really what he was thinking um, when when he decided to attack Austria in 1740, um, uh, um, because uh, yes, there's lots of uh, you know, speculation that oh, it's all far-sighted and and it's all rational, or was he really just out to 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 um, get a, make a name for himself and and, and glory? So, um, and he he's such a, a odd. The more you know about him, he's such an odd character that um, I suppose it would be interesting to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Normally when I ask that question, people haven't covered, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of history. So (laughs) you're you're at a slight disadvantage there. Okay. We're going to link to the book in the show notes. Um, Anywhere else you want us to send people to? Um. No, I think um, yeah, that's that's good. Um, I'm, I've I've got a um, uh, I'm currently running a project um, uh, on the mobilisation of resources, the, the European fiscal military system. So that has its own website with a lot of um, uh, open access publications. So if you're interested in that kind of topic from the 16th through to the late 19th century, um, do check that out. Okay, and do you have any other books in the works? Well, there'll be a book from that project. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's that's the priority. And then I've got a couple of ideas for beyond that. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Best of luck on the book and look forward to having you again on the show. Okay, thank you very much. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.